Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the Soldiers of Cinema podcast. I'm Clark Coffey, and with me, as always, Mr. Cullen McFader. What's going hello, on, buddy? Hello, Not much. Excited and to be back again. You, As always, you sound excited, but like laid back excited. <laughs> I like, don't want to scare people off you don't by wanna, uh, right, jumping right. out their screens. If or... we were both as excited as me, it would be too much. So you've got like <laughs> the, the chill, excited thing going on. Anyway, welcome once again, everybody. Uh, this is episode 10, and we will be discussing Werner Herzog's Masterclass Lesson 11. Not 10, 11. I know it's kind of confusing. We're wild like that. And lesson 11 is about camera, comma, cinematography, a.k.a. it's not the gear, it's you. Cullen, I know you're going to have a ton of stuff mm-hmm. to say about this. I, I know that you, you know more about gear than any single person I think I know. Um, <laughs> so I'll be excited to hear uh, some of your thoughts on a lot of these things. But, uh, but yeah, right off the bat, as usual... As per Mr. Herzog, he jumps right into, uh, you know, making a super huge declarative statement where, hey, get over the gear. It's not about the gear. It's you go out there and uh, make a freaking film with a pinhole camera. Mm -hmm. Um, Stop worrying about the latest and greatest gear. What say you, sir? I agree completely. I um now wait, but but the question is, how many films have you made with a pinhole camera? I'd like to and, and all and of I, them. That's and all. I, <laughs> it's all I like, own. And I'd like to know how long did it take you to it's shoot stop motion, frame by frame? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I I think that uh, he's completely right. Like I, as you know, I I I like gear. I like to you know play with cameras. I like lenses yeah. and things like that. But for sure. Um, and I'm a big proponent of owning all of that. Like, I don't like to rent uh, okay. major equipment. I like to, you know, buy and, and have it be my own. Um, however, with that being said, um, I don't think I've ever bought a new camera mm-hmm. until the one that I currently have has kind of reached a threshold or a ceiling of, of what I can do with it. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I'm doing a feature right now. Um, I don't think with the last camera that I have, I've got the Blackmagic Ursa um, G2 nice camera, camera I had before this. I don't think that I would be nearly as confident to use for a feature film um, as I do right now with this camera. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of where I'm going. Like, you know, the first camera I ever had was an old, you know, high eight um, tape camera. And yeah. I had that for years. And then I had a handy cam, one of those little camcorders for years. And then I had a Sony mirrorless camera for years. And it was, again, every time I upgraded, it was due to the point that I felt like I had both learned all I could on that camera and that I'd reach a a, a certain point where it was stagnating what I could do with my movies. So I'm curious, uh, do you have any kind of examples that you might share? There might be some filmmakers out there who... You know, they're they're just getting into filmmaking and they're trying to figure out, you know, should I upgrade or maybe even they're trying to figure out what should I get? I mean, do you have any kind of examples, the stories you can kind of share where you did realize, oh, okay, it's it's by necessity that Mm -hmm. that I need to go out and upgrade my gear as opposed to, you know, just kind of wanting it and needing it and kind of buying into the whole latest, greatest, you know, you get the B&H catalog in the mail and you're like drooling over everything just because it's so you know (laughs) because it's so amazing but i i'm just curious kind of what what if any particular cues you you Um, you might have had during that process 
a lot of it is about ergonomics for me. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, of course, I think that's the thing about the expense of film equipment um, is so often that cheaper film equipment may actually be equal quality wise in terms of the output quality to right. really expensive equipment. The expensive equipment is usually expensive because it is easier to use, more reliable, um, a lot more, you know, hardy and will survive for longer. Yeah. Um, and lighting is a huge example of that, where you can get cheap lights that, you know, oh, put I've out been here. just as much light and, I've been and here. have just as great of a quality of light as, you know, really expensive lights. But, but you breathe on, on them, but in, you breathe on them and they're gone. Um, yeah. So an example of that would be with the, again, the old black magic that I had um, was not great in low light. Now, at what all. did you have? You, did you have the 4K? Yeah, I had the production camera 4K. Okay. So it was the big kind of not big yeah, the but big box the box one yeah it looks yep. like a silver blonde box um, yeah and that was not good in low light it had a lot of fixed pattern noise issues and it was kind of while i was shooting um that western that we've talked about on here before um, right and we had a night scene and it was not even nighttime it was pretty much dusk uh, really early dusk and i couldn't see every anything and i wound up in post having to just pile a bunch of film grain on it because it was like mm. so noisy and that camera just was really limited in that, you know, it only went up to 30 frames per second. Yeah. Um, it's the ISO. You only had three options for ISO, 200, 400, or 800. So you couldn't even fine tune things like that. Um, and I just got to a point where I was like, you know, I have the money right now to make an upgrade. I might as well just make my life easier. Um, but yeah, I totally agree that it was never about, um, you know, and there's a, lo there's a lot, speaking about cheap equipment, there's a lot of equipment that I have that is very cheap that I'm, I'm not out there looking for, as you said, looking through the B and H catalog where I'm like, Oh, what's the latest, you know, thing that aperture lights have put out or what's the yeah. newest gimbal or things like that. Like, <laughs> I don't really, I, I, I don't like gimbals. I don't like things like that. It's usually a, a, a gear upgrade for me is usually something that is just in this for the sake of efficiency and for making my life easier and right. not for the sake of like, Oh man, I want that camera. Cause it's well, and hopefully propelled by story. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly, ideally yeah. it's propelled by story. I mean, it's, you've got, you know, whatever stories you're working to tell the limitations of your current gear are, you know, are providing a very real, you know, obstacle. And then mm -hmm. it's the story is pushing the gear and, and I, you know, I would have brought, you know, I would have bought the the Ursa G2 if it was a 1080 camera. Like, I don't care about 4K. I don't yeah. care about 8K, 12K, whatever. That doesn't, you know, that's such a, a big thing. Oh, right wow. Now I mean, to, do you want to talk about that just a little bit? I don't want to yeah, get too off track. But let's, yeah. like, briefly, let's touch base on this, uh, you know, because that is, right, I mean, a big part of this is is marketing right it's it's you know we're all kind of exposed to just this onslaught of marketing messaging about mm -hmm. the latest and greatest right and i mean a big way you know that these camera companies continue to sell models newer models is you know it's like the the k the resolution yeah, war it's got a bigger number on it is yeah. a big <laughs> part of it let's i mean tell me a little bit about that i mean actually I think, it's funny i wrote a, a probably i think it was like a 30 page paper on this when i was at university well let's really um, dive in <laughs> yeah i can read my whole paper on the box. no but i mean essentially image quality does not come down to the amount of pixels that you have in it unless you know there's there's something that um a term called um actual fidelity or something like that i can't remember what the exact term is but um, essentially what that means is that there's a there's a certain point where the human eye no longer distinguishes this is like a law of diminishing returns right yeah. in, in a sense right yeah even at the point where you can see 
even like there's no camera even at 720p where you could individually count pixels yeah what matters more is the quality of sensor in terms of the color you know the intake of the color um but those dynamic are things range. that are dynamic range exactly those yeah. are things that are more difficult to market though because yeah. they're, they're they require a more technical understanding of how cameras work whereas much more nuanced right yeah, and the, where, best, the messaging like, for that is so much harder to communicate yeah, it's easy yeah, to something say, saying that like eh, 12k you know right it's, it's got more pixels and it's you know everyone <laughs> right. understands what high definition means it's like when we were kids well at least when i was kids and you know like it would be like uh, nintendo 8-bit and then you know mm-hmm. sega comes out 16-bit you know and and 32 yeah it's kind of what it reminds me of when i was a kid yeah, and right? it's exactly like that where it's like is the quality of the, the game you know and that's what i always tell people too is that like, like and i i made tons of movies on a shitty little high eight video camera that (laughs) you had to record you know onto tape and then transfer that tape and and it was never the quality of the camera that made those good because the quality of the camera if anything was a detriment to them but they were good in spite of the quality of the camera yeah and i think that that's the idea that herzog's getting at with the pinhole camera thing which is really really something that i try to drill in when i teach or when a student of mine asks me you know and most of my students are either early high school or late middle school so really just kind of getting into that um, that level where you would start buying your own cameras and things like that. Well, and and I, I always say that exact thing. It's like get something that is cheap that yeah. takes video. And, 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 and I, I, yeah. I want to add, too, you know, I, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I, I never want to try to put words in Herzog's mouth or anything. But, I, you know, just kind of speaking from, you know, a completely different art form as well. I remember when I was a kid and I first started playing guitar. And, you know, my, I was getting, you know, I had a, a, an instructor and, uh, you know, I was like looking finally to get a guitar, of course. And, you know, what I wanted, right, was like Eddie Van Halen, rest in peace, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like electric guitar, you know, I wanted like huge Marshall amp and I wanted all this stuff, right? And I'm like, give me a bunch of pedals. And yeah. my, my parents were like, no, we're going to get you a really simple acoustic guitar. And my instructor was like, yep, that's exactly what you should get him. Um, And I was like, why, why, why? And my instructor said, look, you know, in the beginning, you've got that it's all about mastering the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And all this extraneous stuff, right? All these effects, the amplifier, different, you know, pickup combinations, all this kind of stuff here. You're not ready for that yet. Of course, I thought I was ready for it. And I guess, you know, sometimes I kind of feel like cameras can be that way. Oh, absolutely. Master yeah. the fundamentals of ta- of getting an image, of capturing an image. Just master the fundamentals. And as we've spoken about, too, you know, neither of us went to film school, but I have friends that went, and they tell stories, and I've met some of these people that they went to school with that I don't know particularly well, but I, I've just heard these kind of anecdotal stories about these kind of usually, you know, like a trust fund kid who uh-huh. gets his parents to buy him a red, and it's like, <laughs> my movies still aren't good. I'm still not getting accepted to festivals. I'm still not, you know, I'm not getting good grades right. on my movies. And it's like, you expect, and I think, it again, completely in line with what you said with the guitar thing, it's like you expect getting an expensive guitar is suddenly going to make you an impressive music, musician. It's just and not the case. you expect getting a red camera is going to suddenly make, you know, there are movies that are shot on reds, on Aries, on, on film that I think look like garbage. <laughs> that I, well, and, and, and even more, people, they're just not good stories. They're just they're not, not good great stories. films. They're, right. You know, and, and, you know, even just, but specifically for like the cinematography. Right. Um, like there, there are movies that are shot on very expensive equipment, very expensive gear, high, high octane Hollywood movies that, that I do think genuinely look worse than some movies that were shot on iPhones or shot on, it can, um, on, you know, just, just a, a like 
rebel, a canon rebel. Yeah. Um, and, and and this it, should be an empowering thing. I mean, I hope for you guys out there listening. I mean, this should be an empowering idea. Mm-hmm. You don't have to wait to have a bunch of money or to have access to you know an extraordinarily expensive camera. You know, we'll keep reiterating this over and over and over, but shoot with what you have and don't look at uh, that the camera that you have as some kind of limitation. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of time, and, and as with all kinds of, you know, um, uh, as with so many different aspects of making art, your limitations can actually be a great strength. They can help kind of provide a, you know, in a strange way, like a scaffolding that can actually help you build your work. So having a simple camera is by absolute, like, don't ever think that that should keep you from making your film. It really, really mm-hmm. shouldn't. And it's um, sort of, I mean, I, I, it also can sort of seem paradoxical for me because, of course, I, I, do have a quite an expensive camera i've got a lot of lenses and things like that but i think the idea for me is even if those were stolen or even if i was driving and they fell out of my car and all broke the first thing i would do is go and get a 300 dollar shitty little dslr and start using that to make movies i wouldn't just sit there and sulk and go my movies are ruined because i lost the big camera i can't make so, movies so anymore. what you're saying is is that if all of your gear somehow happened to magically disappear <laughs> you'd be okay what was your address again, Colin? I forget. Well, luckily like... the border's closed right now. So. <laughs> oh, gosh, you're right. You Darn it. it. Well, um, but, but no, I mean, I think that's that kind of sums it up. I think we're, we're in agreement with Herzog on that. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I don't, I don't think he's expecting many first-time filmmakers to actually go out with a pinhole camera and, and make a movie with that, although pinhole cameras can be very fun to take pictures with. Yeah. Um, but, um, but I think his idea is just, again, that, that if you couldn't tell a story in a single photograph with a pinhole camera, then how are you going to tell a story with a, you know, fifteen thousand dollar Red or Sony or Blackmagic camera? Like you right. can't. You know, you gotta you gotta master the fundamentals of, of visual storytelling prior to um, any of that. Absolutely, and it's funny. You know, speaking of mastering the fundamentals, now th- this this is kind of funny to me. Uh, and Herzog certainly uh, communicates this with all sincerity. I'd like to get your views on this. But Herzog talks about, and you can t- maybe tell what I think because I'm mm-hmm. laughing here as I say it. He talks about not even allowing his DPs to use a viewfinder. Yeah, I, 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 a, a, I would love to be on the set. Now, with, with all due respect, I, I have a sneaky suspicion that his DPs uh, generally use viewfinders and his operators use viewfinders. But... Uh, but I think again, this is kind of his way of, of just really trying to drive home the point. Mm-hmm, exactly. That, yeah. That, with, with, yeah, I, I yeah. think I now. Hey, hey, maybe I've got it all backwards. I mean, maybe you know, maybe not. I'd love to see somebody shoot without a viewfinder. I've, yeah. um, I've never seen it done personally myself, and I would consider that quite an extraordinary feat to shoot an entire film without using one. Um, but, but I, I assume you probably agree that you think maybe it's just a little bit hyperbolic. Just a hair. oh yeah, I mean I, I think I, I understand what he means again too with the the idea of as a as a DP or as a camera operator you should probably know at a certain focal length what's in the frame for no and question you should be able to yeah but I no think question. that. And, and perhaps this is his way of really stressing that. <laughs> yeah, like, you and, know, and, and I'm sure people can get close, right? I mean, I'm sure you use the same uh, you know, camera and lenses for a long period of time. I'm sure that your approximation can be extremely close. I mean, yes. yeah. no question. Yeah, so you know, let me rewind that a little bit. I'm not saying that this is so far-fetched and ridiculous that you know, a really talented, skilled uh, DP couldn't estimate within extremely close or tolerances what the whatever, frame... Yeah. Right, right, absolutely. And I mean... 
you know, if you use the same gear for a long enough time, your muscle memory, I mean, I've seen some extraordinary, almost seemed like magical focus pulling and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and old focus pullers didn't have viewfinders. They had mm -hmm. to know the foot. You have to know that, right. Incredible. You'd actually measure it out. You'd have to know what that depth of focus was going to be and stay within that. Absolutely. So, there, mm -hmm. so yeah, I, it's not like I'm laughing like, oh, this is impossible. I just... I, I personally think that there's nothing wrong with using a viewfinder no, and, and, exactly. uh, yeah. and it would, but, but I do think his point, his overall general point about, you know, really kind of becoming as, as much one with your gear as possible to the point where you, you can estimate that frame and the depth of focus, uh, very closely. And you can understand, uh, the differences in lenses and things like this. But, uh, mm -hmm. but anyway, it's just funny. Of course, Herzog like always has a wonderful way of <laughs> driving his points home. And I think the fundamentals of what a lot of Herzog talks about in this whole masterclass and what, you know, what a very common tenet of teaching, whether it's film or anything is you have to essentially understand the rules to break them. So, you sure. know, understand your camera in and out to the point where you don't need a viewfinder, um, before you then rely on a viewfinder, um, yeah. I think is kind Good of a good way to put idea. it. And so, I, and that's the same reason that you know when I am teaching any focus pulling in, in the film classes I do, I don't let them use uh, focus peaking. I, I yeah. say focus without focus. You can use it once you know how to focus. Yeah, but what, don't but have don't it be a crutch. Rely on focus peaking. So I turn it off and I make them, you know, pull focus just by doing that or storyboarding I, I say you know you can't don't take out the camera and see what focal length you need make a guess make yeah. a make an observation and try and, and if you're wrong that's fine because that's the best way to learn yeah. um but but give yourself the chance and and if anything put yourself in a position that that causes you to fail because well then and i'll you tell you very i mean i'll and I tell you that, you know, mistakes. it really does have, yeah, and it, I mean, it, and this, so sorry, I just, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just no, no, like, that's, had that's this, done. like, yeah. I, um, it, and I, I, it, it's so important. You might wonder, well, why? Okay, look, if I have focus peaking, if I have all these tools available to me, I have these extraordinarily, you know, wonderful viewfinders, you know, or electro, electronic viewfinders with, you know, um, all different types of histograms, peaking and everything. Like, why, why should I need to, to learn how to do so many of these things, things manually. Well, I'll tell you, it's like GPS today. It's like, and I have, I am such a sucker for this. I have completely fallen into this. But when I was, when I first started driving, of course, we didn't have GPS. Nobody had smartphones. I had mm -hmm. a map and, or I just had to remember where things were. And I got around all over and the place. We've both been pizza delivery drivers, so and I was I a pizza delivery like. guy. And yeah. I used to I used to string together four, five, six pizza deliveries, and I would just look at a map for about a minute and a half, and mm -hmm. I would map out every single delivery in order, and I would go. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that was same. it. Yeah, they and, didn't allow us to use our phones. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I could not find my way to the grocery store that I go to fifty times a month today, because I have become so reliant on my cell phone on my gps and there will definitely come a time when you're shooting where you're going to be on location and one of those tools that you've learned to rely on is going to fail mm -hmm. or won't work in the specific circumstance that you're going to need it to be or in. you'll be shooting on a medium that doesn't allow it all like any number of film, these things yeah. correct any number or combination of these things and what are you going to do then mm-hmm um, and so I, and, and you think, well, what's the chances of that happening? Well, I think even with the best gear, the chances are actually not that far fetched. No. And um, I think even taking it a step further there too, I've seen people who have 
you know, no equipment failure, have focus speaking on, learn to focus pull with focus speaking, who are awful at it, even with focus speaking, who, who yeah, you know, their, the their idea of focus is getting the most colored squares in the spot and not actually really analyzing the image for what it is of what's in focus and what's Excellent not. Excellent point, right. And not, it's like you they're almost, not even looking at the image. It makes I've your brain turn into like an autofocus thing, which is, you know, yeah. the worst. Yeah, and so, so great points. And so I think we just, you know, hammer home yet again the importance of really learning the fundamentals and then building upon that, you know, learn to navigate manually mm -hmm. and then you're not having to rely on the tools to the point where you're kind of pushed out of the equation. It's like at that point, what do you, what are you there for then? You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, he mentions, and I, I, I've seen this film uh, briefly or not briefly, it's a brief film. So I've just seen it <laughs> uh, and you've not yet, but Herzog talks about the documentary film and I think it's uh, the English title is The Mad Masters, which is a 1955 short documentary. It's about 36 seconds long-ish, um, shot in the Gold Coast, and has to do with uh, colonialism and its impact on the uh, people there. And uh, not that I would like pretend to understand complete context of this film, because um, mm -hmm. it would take a little bit more than just watching the film to obtain a complete context, but it's really a, an extraordinarily intimate view on uh, some uh, a, an important religious ritual that's taking place that the filmmaker has actually been invited to, uh, to document. And Herzog uses an example of, you know, what you can do with such minimal gear. And I think Herzog mentions, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like he has a hand-cranked camera. He can only shoot, you know, 24-second burst. He's got one lens. I do not remember the focal length of the lens that he had available to him. But, mm -hmm. I mean, really rudimentary gear. And I think it was just him. And I'm curious. I don't even know if sound was even recorded for this. I, I'm not quite sure uh, if any of the sound is actually, you know, on location sound there i'm not quite sure but the bottom line is is that it's a it's it's really an extraordinary extraordinary film it documents something really interesting and visceral and you know here's a guy with a camera that to most people today they'd be like you know what the hell is this you yeah know? so it's i i do want to ask you a few questions too yeah um, yeah shoot. relating to this and relating again to that idea not just to talk about gear but to talk about how how gear can affect your movie yeah um so firstly uh and we briefly touched on this before i think in another episode but um we've i don't think either of us have ever shot a full feature or even a longer short of our own on film that's correct um, I have i've not. shot i've shot you know I, I have as i said i have a 16 millimeter camera and i've shot short things that you know again very similar to what you just described where it's a hand cranked you know um push button thing that that goes yeah. for 24 seconds um and i think just to get into a broader scope of it because you also mentioned the idea that he has not a zoom lens just a, a lens with with a single focal length that's my um, understanding that he's just got a single focal length lens that's correct yeah, and, but i don't going, recall what and going beyond beyond what um maybe this movie the limitations on this movie were but just to a, a general scope of, of film altogether as well um, the weight of cameras has gone oh, down so much. Yes. And I find not just in terms of just the ease on the camera operator or whatever, carrying it. I find that all of those things, um, restrictions are some of the best things for story. Ever. I agree. 
Um, it's one of the reasons that another one of the reasons that I really wanted to get a uh, an upgraded camera was because I like larger cameras because I like the feeling of and I've always described it this way is that a heavy camera. Let's say let's say that I'm trying to shoot a scene and I need the camera to be in a corner and I need to be high up in a, in a corner looking down at somebody and the camera's too big for that. It just won't work. I find that the second decision that I have to make there going, okay, that's not going to work. Now I have to actually think about the shot and go, what what is the exact placement? Or if I'm shooting on a lens that, you know, say I'm shooting on a 50 and I don't have any other lenses with me. Um, the idea of being restricted by that lens and going, all right, uh, I can't get closer to that. So now I have to really think about what story can I tell with this shot um, with these limited circumstances that I've got. Mm-hmm. I think that that makes you think way harder about what you're actually doing and the placement of the camera and what you're, you know, the visual storytelling of the movie. I would agree um, wholeheartedly. Yeah. I think that there is a strange kind of paradox, you know, uh, kind of this weird paradox that goes on with the creative process where, you know, and I, I, I think from, I mean, I guess by its very nature, right, any any medium is, is a set of limitations, right? Yes, yeah. uh, if you're a sculptor, there's a certain set of limitations. And then even further, depending on the material that you're sculpting in, right? Uh, if you're a painter, that's a certain set of restrictions that are different than if you were a sculptor. And then even further, uh, what are you painting on? What are you painting with? Uh, if you're a filmmaker, um, what you're shooting with, uh, camera wise, medium wise, lens wise, etc. I mean, so, you know, kind of by its very definition, right? All mediums are these set of limitations. You can mm-hmm. look at them that way. And so, I mean, basically what we're doing when we sit down and we say we want to create something and then we pick some way to express ourselves, we're saying, what set of limitations would I like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, yeah, to what work are my, with what it? What are my options here? Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's kind of what you're doing. Um, well, it's also it's also one of the reasons that I prefer, you know, if I can avoid handheld, I, I prefer to shoot on tripod all the time for, for movies that I'm making because I find, again, that when you're shooting handheld and you're kind of, you know, there are some great handheld shots and movies that use handheld extremely well, but they're all almost, to me, planned like they're tripods, whereas I find a lot of people fall into when they're just doing handheld photography, um, just kind of going with the flow and, and almost improvising the camera, whereas I find yeah. if I'm on a tripod, I really have to know where everything's going to be because I have to make sure that, you know, if I'm still here, I have to make sure that I can get all the stuff in the shot and really plan that out. Um, that's not to say there aren't places for handheld, and I've, I use handheld when it's uh, when it's appropriate, but I do think that, and, you know, same again goes for these cameras that can go up to, like, 300,000 ISO or 256,000 ISO yeah. or whatever, and it's like... Yeah. Insane. You're basically throwing lighting out the window because you can, you know, you don't need to light anymore. Um, you're, I, I think that oftentimes the breaking down of those limitations ironically leads to almost a late, not necessarily a laziness, but just an overlooking of certain decisions that should still be really vital. It might be less premeditated. It's true. Um, mm-hmm. It's possible. Uh, I mean, I think, and we can you know, to tie this in a little bit, you know, Herzog, let's talk about operating camera and a larger camera, a smaller camera. And there's no question these things have a, a significant impact mm-hmm. on your filmmaking. And you can certainly see this over time. You know, I think you and I have talked about this where cameras used to weigh, you know, a couple hundred pounds and you look at how a film was shot 
you know, and then fast forward to today where people are shooting with mirrorless, you know, just minuscule form factor cameras that weigh ounces. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see just a, a profound difference um, in how most films look today just based on that one change in technology, uh, just that one alone. But, um, I mean, you know, Herzog talks about operating with his whole body. And I especially be curious what you think about this. I, I am like you. I like I, I like a full, more kind of formal, traditional form factor camera video. You know, um, I, I'm not a big fan of small form factor. And I think if I'm not, if I was if I was understanding you correctly, that's one of the reasons you wanted to move to the Mini Ursa G2, mm -hmm. correct? Yeah, because it's a much larger. It's a much larger. larger it's not kind very of, many, despite the name. No, right. Uh, it's pretty substantial. Um, and it's certainly more substantial than that production camera you had, which is, is mm -hmm. still, you know, which is, which even that it's is a, a bulky, substantial, it's a very yeah. bulky, substantial camera compared to what a lot of people shoot with like a, a Sony or well, not Nikon has some, or, you know, these mirrorless cameras, which have some very interesting, uh, capabilities in an extremely small form factor body. Um, but, you know, Herzog talks about operating with his whole body and kind of, and I, and I love this because Herzog talks about this in so many ways over and over and over again, the physicality, mm -hmm. the athleticism of filmmaking. And it's interesting to me to watch Herzog kind of describe this in the master class and he kind of gets up and pantomimes having a camera. Um, but he talks about, you know, how it's, it's a dance that you don't want to remove yourself from the physicality of what's going on. And that, you know, this, this, this helps you kind of, you know, I think become one with the story you're telling and it, it allows like a, a certain flow and lyricism and rhythm to to kind of develop. Um, and I'm so curious. I mean, we're talking about different technologies, different form factor cameras. What are your experiences? How do you like to shoot? What do you think about what Herzog says about, you know, uh, how he likes to shoot? I think it's, it's perspective? it almost lines up exactly because I think that larger cameras are easier to feel that weight and to feel that you know exactly like be you know be one with the camera and, and how he sort of says it like move it with your whole body and I almost well it find certainly that forces it right I mean exactly it, when, it you, when you've got a huge you, yeah. camera on your shoulder or if it's even if it's you're doing it in like an underslung or yeah. whatever um I think a good camera operator is somebody who you know you'll watch them contort and I had a little bit of experience with that when I was doing live camera photography or cinematography at um tiff when it which is very different than of course narrative but um just just contorting your body to get into that image and it can it can be super uncomfortable and that's why most camera operators have really bad backs but um <laughs> but but it feels like there's just something again about the image versus just having you know a dslr in my hand and being able to kind of hold my hand out and and point it even beyond just the fact that smaller cameras tend to handle shakiness less well yes. there's just something about being able to just do that and to hold my camera out and you know be fine with it and it's not versus really really feeling the weight and you look at someone like hoyta van hoytema who is um he's done most of nolan's most recent movies on imax uh -huh. and like he really pioneered this idea of ha doing handheld imax which is insane because IMAX yeah. cameras are like the size of desks, but he right. he's really, really pioneered this idea of it. And it's really interesting. And it's one of these things, again, that I really talk about in the class is I, I take a look at photography, handheld photography on smaller cameras and then something like an IMAX camera. And it's a completely different feeling. The IMAX camera almost feels like it's moving by itself. Like it's this big, like every every single 
movement of the camera is intentional and it's yes. precise and yes it's, it's this planned is and it's you know versus with purpose. just being able to with you know, conscious purpose flip a camera around yeah exactly I, right and as i try to find you know because it might be you know challenging for maybe somebody uh to kind of kind of understand well what, what's the big deal here it's like don't you want don't you want the camera to be more mobile don't you yeah, want or like, the freedom to yeah um and and certainly like make no mistake there are some definite pros to smaller cameras like i mean mm-hmm. absolutely there are i mean just you know but but i think um what we're trying to kind of highlight is like some of the things that you might not instantly think of that are benefits of a of a larger camera um but regardless i think whether you're working with a larger for- format camera or a or a, i'm sorry a form factor not format that would be a different thing but a larger mm-hmm. yeah. uh yeah um, <laughs> form, form factor that's a whole different thing form factor camera or a small one i mean you know even with a smaller camera you can set things up you can put yourself uh in a position where you are making conscious deliberate purposeful movements mm-hmm. with you know with your entire body and i think it really is about i mean and this goes back to what we've talked about about directing right at the action about not being in a video village where mm-hmm. you're right there with the action you are involved and present with the performers with your actors and you know it's it's that that dance or that exchange of energy and being there um and that's is, you know that's a really great time to actually bring up Herzog's philosophy on zooms ah, which yes. is ironic because Aguirre begins with a zoom but um <laughs> but um I think that yeah he, Herzog for those of you who haven't seen the master class or don't know that Herzog doesn't like zooms or at least in this lesson kind of speaks to them about about don't zoom into a subject kind well, of right. actually physically move in with the camera with your whole body right so he's not saying that. and which and we can touch on this this is kind of two different things he's not mm-hmm. saying i don't ever use a zoom lens he actually does specifically call out uh and and i actually i love zooms for documentary yes. work yeah. i i actually love them and i i don't know that i've ever i mean i almost exclusively shoot documentary stuff with a zoom um because it allows you to to change the focal length of your lens on the fly, which is vital when you don't you can't you can't plan anything. You're mm-hmm. you're running and gunning, and I think for running and gunning, uh, zoom lens is extraordinary. Now there are trade offs, and maybe you can ex- you can explain those to people. But um, just uh, your f stop, just having less light come in, could be one of them. Yeah. Image yeah. quality would be another potentially. Um, but uh, but what yeah Herzog's talking about is actually making a zoom move actually changing the focal length of the lens while you're shooting and using that footage in your film that's what he's talking about uh what are your thoughts on that i mean are you as hardcore against using zooms in that way no i I do uh i like zooms i I actually really enjoy i think that i think it's a completely different effect i think is the thing for me is that a zoom to me is like intentionally observational it feels like you're almost prying in yeah. Whereas moving in to me feels more of an intentional movement or a deliberate, like, grand motion that is now, even just to well, me, it's more, it's more, it's a completely different emotion. It um, is. I, I mean, I think, yeah, when you see a zoom, and, and I, I'm trying to think of a documentary film that I've, that I can't think of one off the top of my head where I've seen an intention, you know, a zoom used in the actual film i can certainly think of some narrative films where i've seen yeah. zooms sergio and, leone and, loves them and and quentin tarantino of mm-hmm. course even more recently uses zooms and i feel like there's certainly a self-referential uh feel to them there's a certain it's calling attention to the artifice of the camera 
mm-hmm. I, I think, when you're using a Zoom like that. And so if you want to say, like and when Quentin Tarantino, you know, he's postmodern, kind of really self-referential and is always referring to even his own films or other films or television shows. I mean, it's almost kind of, you know, just one more way that he's, you know, winking to everybody. Ha ha ha, this is a film, mm-hmm. um, which certainly may not be a uh what you want to do uh all the time in other films and so yeah i think there's a place but i think there's great they're great for emphasis too like you look at the shining there's tons of refresh my memory refresh my memory where do they i haven't seen it the first time time that uh, danny sees the twins and it zooms right in on his face and it's like this great again this really visceral is it like a dolly zoom though or is it actually just just, uh it's it's it it is like a split second crash zoom like and it goes from like and he uses them in um barry linden as well yeah, there's those really, really long, like some of the longest. Oh, like that really slow, drawn out. I um, haven't seen either one of those films in a long so time. So yeah, I mean, I think that again, it's, it's like any like any camera movement. There's there's if you're if you're using the tool to convey a feeling or to on purpose uh, explain a story, then that's that's I think what it's there for. I'm, and I do, do you think, think again, about for documentaries. Like I'm like I said, I'm still racking my brain. I can't think of a significant documentary film that I have seen that utilized a zoom move in the footage. Can you beyond, beyond utilizing zooms to like recalibrate and kind of, and it kind of as a stylist. I mean, I've seen kind of like maybe Errol Morris, you know, in a Mm -hmm. seated interview kind of use a reframing, you know, and kind of give it this, like, like this feeling of dirty. Very. Yeah. 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 But I, but aside from that, I really, yeah, I, I can't, recall yeah. but i mean anyway. again it is it is funny to me because that that opening shot of aguirre is i'm pretty sure starts zoomed in on somebody and there's no question there's no question out, it so. does there absolutely it, yeah. it does and this is what's great it's which, like herzog you know he contradicts himself at every turn which is yeah. wonderful i love yeah. it you know <laughs> um but no i mean and, and just just to answer your question there earlier too it, it is yeah zooms these days are actually quite they're getting to the point where they're almost matched Amazing. up with with yeah. clients, which is great, and they're lowering in prices. But yeah, like a cinema zoom, you're always going to have at an equivalent focal length for the price that you pay. You're you're always going to have a um, higher f stop limitation. Uh, yeah, yeah, the yep. t- it's just less light and for t. Um, yeah, if we're talking sin lenses. Yeah, and you know, and again, cinema zooms are majorly expensive. There's one that I'm looking at picking up that's actually probably the cheapest by like ten grand. Um, for the quality of it and uh that's more for me again for efficiency is just that rather than sitting there and having to switch out a lens uh yeah. on set when i've got such a small crew working with me and when we've got you know very limited time i'd much rather just be able to um you know if i'm going from a just 20 to just a 50, focal, just, boom yeah. yeah and of yeah. and of course you've got a lot more flexibility you've got basically a nearly you know it's an analog infinite uh focal length um mm-hmm. increment between yes. whatever the limitations of that particular lens are. So, mm-hmm. and I think, again, I'll just read it. I think for run and gun, you know, I think for documentary filmmaking, they're extraordinarily powerful. You yeah. don't always have a chance to change lenses. Matter of fact, you know, uh, you often don't have time to do that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. being able to, to you know, recompose your picture on the fly, your image on the fly can just, just be extraordinarily yeah, and powerful. And again, it goes basically with the theme of this, this whole episode is about which is just know why you're doing it and understand why you're doing it and doing it with intention um don't just do it because it's like oh you know what i'm just gonna zoom in here because i've got the zoom lens on um you know <laughs> make sure that the, the point of your focal length is is to tell the story to its best capacity yeah um not to just be like well i'm gonna get you know and again this kind of went on with our last episode too where it's like 
don't just get the options so that you can delay making that decision and then later on in post go oh actually i like that one more because that one was there make those decisions on set the zoom lens should be a tool to make things uh more efficient for you and to give you an easier time doing that but it shouldn't be the decision maker yeah um, and you shouldn't rely on it to do so so well speaking of making decisions Let's talk about uh, what makes a, a great or good cinematographer. And let's start first with, you know, as a, as a director, if, if you're hiring or looking to work with a, a DP or cinematographer, do you have any, like, what are your thoughts on how to go about doing that? Oh, it's uh, it's such a fluid role. I think that's one of the first, there's one of the first conversations that every DP and director have is it's almost like the vice president and the president where it's like, what are you going to take care of? What am I going to take care of? What are we going to work on together? Yeah. Um, every director likes it differently, but I'd say that, you know, again, a cinematographer is, is in so many ways, not only a technical role, it is a support position, a creative support position for the director. Yes. Um, in that the director should be able to say, I want this for the, for the DP and the DP, a good DP will understand what that vision is. Um, you know, famously, uh, Steven Spielberg and Janusz Kaminski um, don't even meet before movies now because Spielberg trusts Kaminski so much that he'll fulfill his, you know, his vision. And, and that's wild. He huh? understands, you know, what Spielberg would go for for a sh certain shot. And I think that's, to me, what what makes a really good DP. And I think, again, it's difficult to narrow down because it's such a fluid role. It is, you are there's no role of a DP that it would work on one movie and then work to a next movie and be doing exactly the identical things. I think there, it, what might be easier is what makes a bad DP, um, which to me would be very much overstepping your bounds um, and trying to break the hierarchy. And I think that things like that are really what makes things not conducive to a creative environment on set. Um, Robert Ellswit and who I actually think is, is quite a, a good DP and Paul Thomas Anderson famously no longer work together despite the fact that they made uh, you know tons of brilliant brilliant looking movies together right and it was because they I think they just didn't get along personality and wise and I think I mean and it's it kind of seems like common sense or obvious um, but obviously it, it's so vital right yeah uh, mm -hmm. you can have an extraordinary like you let's say you you're a director and you're looking to collaborate with uh, a DP I mean obviously this is this is first and foremost it's you know not only do they that you know they're able to receive your vision they understand it they can get on the same page with you but that they can I guess add to that or or even you know without taking away from or adding to it in a way that changes that vision execute that vision mm -hmm. um you know technically because and if I can I, give I, some advice to to lower budget please. filmmakers too who might be might be starting out um well a few things if you're looking for a dp just note that especially if you're younger every single person that goes out and buys themselves a camera package is going to start calling themselves a dp <laughs> you know, coming out of film That's school or whatever, they're going to, they're going to say that they're a DP. Um, and I would also say, look beyond if, you know, you'll get reels. If you put up, there's tons of Facebook groups that are like, you know, find me a cinematographer, blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of post in those groups and say, Hey, I need a DP for this project for this date. And so you'll get a bunch of people commenting on it with their reels and things like that. Right. Right. Um, look beyond those. I would definitely say, um, because being a DP is so much more than just, selecting a good set of lenses and you know putting some lights up uh things can look 
very, very pretty, but I think that so often cinematographers use movies, very, especially very amateur cinematographers use movies as just options and opportunities for them to get stuff for their demo reel. Mm. So their whole goal is to make the most brilliant, pretty looking, you know, done up, high octane, high concept looking lighting scenarios so that they can go look at this great lighting right. setup. Whereas what I look for, or at least what I'm impressed by, by um, whether it's amateur or, you know, very professional, high level DPs is, um, is restraint really is, is simplicity and, and, you know, I, I always think that somebody who can shoot an entire scene with, with a window and a bounce to me is going to be a, a far better and far more um, flexible and helpful and creative DP than somebody who just knows, you know, the latest 10 Ari lights that they can rent for a few thousand for a week and then, and then <laughs> right. set those up. Like, it's, it's very similar to kind of, again, the rest we've been talking about. It's like... If you can't light, if you can't take a bounce sheet and put it up with just natural light in the room and make that look good, then there's no way that just putting up a bunch of, you know, LED light panels and and shining them at some scantily clad model is going to make you um, (laughs) a DP. Can you tell that I have a lot of experience? No, I've seen it. I I, I do know exactly what you're talking about, and I think it's a great point. I mean, you know, look for people who can do a lot with very little. And And be so careful with it, too. Be very, very careful with choosing your DP because I... Certainly meet. You know, I would absolutely say meet with people, and I've even gone so far as, you know, of course, like, meet with them, but I've even gone so far as to, you know, do a little bit of work... um, just reviewing shot list and kind and of having them kind of like camera that. test yeah. and you know especially depending on the scope of your project the budget of your project and everything of course but yeah it uh, i mean of course you really can't put enough time and energy into it and i think you know some of the things that herzog talks about specifically in this lesson are you know he talks about uh i think the you know the ability of a cinematographer to notice nuance and subtlety and you know mm-hmm. again to be to be so present there in the moment and, you know, I think he uses a specific example of this cinematographer noticing some subtext in a documentary uh, situation where above a table, these three people were getting along and kind of kissing each other's butts and, you know, being very diplomatic politically. And this cinematographer actually noticed that below the table, literally like a literal table, that the body language of these three people was radically different. And mm-hmm. you could actually see the the unease and the, you know, resentment between these people um, through their body language where they thought they weren't being seen. And yeah. he uses that as an example of, you know, it was, this is the kind of person I want to work with. Somebody who is, is there fully present and is mm. extremely sensitive and observant. Observant um, is the key there. That, and that's, that's, that's really, key. and that goes for, that goes for documentary and narrative. Absolutely. Um, you know, because the best thing that you can possibly have in a, a DP is somebody who also recognizes actors and what their their strengths are visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and Good I think point. that it, and to switch to switch points to here for just a real quick second, rather than you know to talk to people who want to be DPs rather than people who want to be directors looking for DPs, um, I'd say that you know if I had very simple advice for somebody who wants to work as a cinematographer. Um, it's not to go on YouTube and listen to, you know, hours of content on there about how to set up a different light to get a certain mm. thing or to 
you know, there's some stupid, stupid videos on YouTube, like what f-stop is the best one. Yeah, uh, yeah, which right. Is a real video, and it's it's bizarre. Uh, uh-huh. um, but 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 um, rather, well, because you know, I just think pick up a camera and, and film start your shooting. family eating dinner. Yeah, film your I mom agree. making making uh, you know making food or something like that, and play with the light. Conrad well, L. And- Hall. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. I just wanted to add, and and look at great art. Yes. Look at, yeah. look at art. Paintings. Look at, look at paintings. Photography. Look at photography. Yeah. You know, it, it's especially looking at still uh, still art, because, of course, it really allows you to analyze a, a specific frame for a long time, mm-hmm. of course, but, you know, observe the, the moving picture works of masters as well. But I completely agree. And I just, I mean, it, you know, uh, like many art forms, there are so many videos out there, and I'm sure most of them by well-intentioned people mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. focus on... How do I say this? It, where it's almost like, here's the secret how to do this. And if you just learn this thing, uh, then you're going to know how to do it. Like you had mentioned, it's like, well, here's the here's like a perfect F-stop for X situation. Well, it would be like the... looking at the, the Statue of Liberty and saying that, okay, that's a great work of art. Here's how you screw in a nail or rivet or something like that. And, and going like that's you know this is the technique that they use to rivet together the well, that's what i mean like here's the secret right that's yeah. there's there's so much of this like here's the secret if you want to be good at this then here's the secret how to do it and of course there never are any secrets and, there and never are any simple answers gear. you don't yeah. have to like conrad l hall as i said he's he's my favorite cinematographer of all time i mm-hmm. think he he did some brilliant brilliant work and his if there was ever a definition of like painting with light he was the he was the one yeah um and he famously uh, usually would just use a single light source and then just bounce it around the room with mirrors or with uh, with bounces like sheets and things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, he was so, so simple in the way that he lit and lit for story and for mood and not just, again, um, for gimmick. Flash. I think that's a huge part of, of a lot of um, DPs that are, are, you know, working in bigger Hollywood movies these days as well that... Um, that go for flash and they go for Spectacle. gimmick and they go for yeah you know this this huge i'm gonna set up a 50 by 50 light grid that's got you know moving colors all over it because it's gonna look really cool and it's like well who cares <laughs> i don't care about that yeah um, yeah yeah it's, but it's a it's a good point to be careful you know it's mm-hmm. there's one thing i think to learn to teach technical skill but to think that it's the end-all be-all mm-hmm you know, that this light's going to make you a good cinematographer or this, you know, whatever these like specific, like you'd mentioned, like there's some perfect F-stop or something or whatever. It's, you know, definitely stay away from anybody that's trying to sell you some snake oil, that there's just um, this one way to do it and that that's the secret to do it, you know. And as Herzog says too, it's it's kind of gets into this whole aesthetic thing that he talks about, which is like, don't hunt for an aesthetic. He never Mm. hunts for an aesthetic. And I think that that is... A huge part of modern cinematography. It's is a that, really great is that point. You go onto Instagram and it's like if you look up hashtag cinematography or whatever, it's all about the aesthetic of it. It's all about, you know, look at these these neutral browns and it, it's got this fall aesthetic or something like that. Yeah. And whereas I think it's it's the what I at least, you know, my intention if I'm whether I'm shooting my own thing or if I'm working on somebody else's project is to let the subject matter dictate the cinematography yeah yeah you know if it not to make the decisions you know not to use it i don't i don't really care about color palettes i don't care about things like that i don't i don't go into anything like that i i would much rather take a look at the image that we're getting on set and go okay how can i accentuate this how can i take what is happening naturally whether it be interior or exterior 
and and use that naturalistic element to heighten it rather than to go in and go you know in advance plan out every single little detail about where the light's going to be and what the color of that light's going to be and what the what the grade is going to be like afterwards right it's um, well it's such an interesting you know kind of philosophical discussion and it's something that i just you know it's one of the, the many things that i just love about herzog that he gets me thinking about these things but mm-hmm. you know he, a couple things here i mean one he talks about favoring momentum over style and it's interesting that he uses the word momentum because again i just you know he is so much about urgency he's so much about physicality he's so much about allowing you know creating a situation where the subconscious is going to spring forth and be you know be careful about over analyzing and over predicting and over manipulating things mm-hmm. and i couldn't agree more i mean he talks about in that lesson about you know be careful you know uh and and i've been here i've seen this you know i like i i love dps i'm not one myself i love them but sometimes you can you're you're on set and and you've got your performers are red hot You've got, you know, I mean, you're trying to manage the energy and emotion of your performers and you've got a DP who's wanting to, you know, manipulate every single tiny. Mm, I need to switch, you know, that light's a little bit too hot or whatever. It's like, yeah. And and it's like, yes, I mean, I'm like, you know, I I completely appreciate a person's dedication to doing, you know, everything that they feel like they, they can do to make a film wonderful. But you've got to know as a director where to to draw a line diplomatically and say okay hey i appreciate what you're doing but our focus here is the story our focus Mm -hmm. is the momentum of story and like you said it's it's allowing the subject to dictate and realizing of course that you know there's compromises between every department and i feel like performance is such an important one i mean performances we've talked about this too is such a fragile transient vaporous thing if you've got that if you've got that right there go with it Mm-hmm. Don't don't stifle that by by just overproducing everything to the nth. You've really um, got to learn how to rein in perfectionism, and whether that's your own or whether that's somebody true. else on the crew or or an actor or whatever. Yeah. You really, I I'm not I'm lucky that I'm not a perfectionist because it's it's definitely a personality trait that some people just have, and it's yeah. not their fault. Um, it's not their I'm, fault. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I mean, oftentimes it isn't. Like it's this compulsion, right? Yeah, and yeah. I um. I'm very, very grateful that I'm not because there are so many times where something won't be perfect and I'll be like, no, it's good enough. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. And I think that we should move on for the sake and of it's about priority. Moment, I mean, I get, you, said, you know, momentum. Yeah. yeah, it's about priority. And I think, you know, and it like you were just to kind of go back a little bit to what you had started talking about, you know, about this premeditated aesthetic. I think it's so interesting to me that, I mean, there's no question that, that Herzog has an aesthetic. I think you can see, you know, there are so many kind of themes for sure mm-hmm. in his films. Uh, you know, I think like his overriding kind of philosophy or his kind of the way that he sees the world comes through so clearly. And in even so many just of visually, he, he really likes wide angle lenses. And, and visually like he's got, yeah. right. And it's, I just love the way he ends this lesson, right? Where he's like, you know, you know, he's, he talks about not being very consciously preoccupied. Mm-hmm. Uh, with his aesthetic himself, and even to the point where he's, you know, telling his collaborators, his DPs, hey, I don't, you know, don't get artsy fartsy on me. I love that he yeah. uses that terminology. <laughs> you know, artsy fartsy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, but he's like, you know, it, there's something so interesting and key here, I think, to the creative process as a whole, where he talks about, you know, look, I, I don't premeditate this, 
And mm-hmm. yet here it is. Somehow all of my films, they clearly have an aesthetic. You can't argue that they don't. But mm-hmm. but it's but I'm not working toward that. Yeah. The aesthetic seeps in. Well, the I aesthetic think I, happens and, and, I, and I just love I love 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 that he's like I don't know how that happens. Yeah. But what's exactly. more I don't want to know. It's like this keeping the mystery. It's allowing, and he does this in his writing. He does this in so many aspects of his creative process where he's like, I want the mystery to be. I want there to be a subconscious, spontaneous aspect to my work. And maybe that is his aesthetic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it, it, his voice, his, his authentic voice comes through so clearly in, the, in so many aspects of his work. And I think this is a big reason why. I think, you know... We get so, whether we're writing or whether we're, you know, we're composing a shot as a DP. I mean, I think sometimes we get so analytical. We operate so much from our shoulders up Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. we forget that there's actually this whole body of aesthetic that lies here from your shoulders down. Just naturally. That you can't articulate with language or with, I mean, there's this whole subconscious ocean of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It's it's inherent. It's like part of the human condition. And I think sometimes you really cut off this huge depth of aesthetic by by only kind of recognizing or thinking that there's just this like shoulder up, like analytical aspect mm-hmm. to aesthetics. So I I think it's wonderful. I think it's like the no, way I think he ends this great, lesson's great. Yeah. 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 And again, it's it's that idea of applying each image for what it needs to be and represent, which is just you know, again, it hits the nail on the head. And it's exactly like you said, that that we all, every single human being, talks in a certain way and writes in a certain way. And we yeah. are not, I'm not consciously thinking about the style that, of which I, I, you know, string together my sentences. Because you wouldn't be happens. able to. Yeah, yeah. You, it's like he uses this great analogy. It's like, look, okay, I'm writing longhand. And he jokes, he's like, oh, nobody writes longhand. You'd send a tweet now. But, you know, um, but it's like, look, if, if you were so preoccupied by your handwriting, that you wouldn't be able to actually write the sentence. You, yeah, you don't pay too actually... much attention to style. You forget to write a book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> a and, good and book. I, I, right. And I think it's so it's such an interesting point. And it's certainly, I mean, it speaks to me. It speaks to me deeply. It's certainly something that I need to be reminded of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a tendency to kind of get you know shoulders up, analytical, and so much of our creation really takes place in the body, in the gut, in the heart. Um, and uh, it's just a great reminder of that, you know, that we are, I think, all of us, every single one of us, we're natural born storytellers. I think we're mm-hmm. storytelling machines. And I think all of us have a unique aesthetic that's that's just fundamentally, it's a part of all that we are. It's a combination of our DNA and our, you know, the, the nature and nurture combination that makes us all singularly unique. And... Um, you, you can't just get to all of that with conscious premeditation. You just can't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, no, it's, it's right. a great way to end it, though. Yeah, so. yeah, fantastic. All right, well then, on that note, everybody get out there, man, and start shooting. and get yeah. to. <laughs> what are you waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for? That's right. With whatever camera you've got, get out there and shoot. All right, man. Well, as always, uh, Cullen, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for being here. And for everybody mm-hmm. out there listening, we appreciate you as well. Uh, thank you so much for hanging in there with us. I hope it's been an enjoyable one. And until next time, we'll see you then. See ya. See ya.